is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 28, 2020. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. No time off for us. Too much is happening. Donald Trump and his big lie. His big lie about democracy not working. It worked just fine. And you can pack your bags and go. What the hell is wrong with people still backing Donald Trump, the sore loser of all time? Thank goodness for the judiciary, even Trump appointees who said in the Third Circuit, come on, this legal process rejects your bullcrap, and now they're going to the Supreme Court? I don't think so. More likely, the Supreme Court will rule on self-pardons and coming indictments for Donald J. Trump. I spend my time in the judicial system. One of the great judges in Colorado is the Honorable Gary Jackson. He is my guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is the definitive story of Gary Jackson, the North Cherry Creek legend. What a career he has had, and we talk about it as he bats number three today in the batting order. Ladies first, Senator Rhonda Fields. Is an amazing leader in Colorado. She's been part of the legislature for 10 years now, and we start off this show with Rhonda Fields. Dave Gunder's My Troubadour has the perfect song, Mayor Hancock. Boy, does he have trouble. He told everybody to stay home for Thanksgiving. Then he got on a plane and jetted off to Mississippi. Do what I say, don't do what I do. Dave Gunder's song called Do What I Say, it's got the perfect message for Michael Hancock and Gavin Newsom. And let's face it, parents who tell their kids, do what I say, and don't necessarily tell them everything we've done. But I've done a great show with great interviews. It starts with Rhonda Fields right now. Welcome back to my show. One of my favorite people in the world. I've known her quite a while. Rhonda Fields, state senator. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be with you this day, the day after Thanksgiving. Black Friday. I think it's wonderful. How was your Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. I tried a new recipe out for turkey. It included an herb butter mixture that you put under the skin. And it was perfect. That sounds marvelous. Although, how can you go wrong with butter? I know you can't. (laughs) can't. I just told my wife we're out of butter because, boy, did we eat great. But tell us more about Thanksgiving and who you were able to be there with. You know, I have my immediate family, which is my daughter and her four kids. So my baby Zion, he just turned four. And then I had Nyrema, Nyla, and Mia. And Maisha. 
and we were able to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner together, and then we played games, and we sang, and we listened to music, and we just had a good old-fashioned time. Oh, my. Mama Maisha. Boy, I've known her yes. since she was much younger. And tell us about your wonderful daughter, Maisha. You know, and she may be kind of coming in here shortly because I, her kids spent the night. So after Thanksgiving, we were all full, you know, with sweet potato pie and ice cream and all that. And so we just all fell out, you know, to sleep after we were done eating. So she's doing wonderful jobs. She was on the Hickenlooper campaign. So she was one of his senior political advisors. And she's been with Hickenlooper for his last run for governor's race. She supported him there. And then when he ran for president, she supported him then, traveled with him around the country. He helped secure his seat as our next U.S. senator. And she just, she just does other stuff for our community. So she's a rock star. She's doing extremely well, being a parent and being a wife and being my daughter. Wow, to get that all done, it's amazing. I had Alexis King, the new DA-elect in Jefferson County. She's a mother working a big job in Maisha, my goodness, with four of the grandkids. Although, what do they call you, Rhonda? Grandma or what's the name? They call me Nana. I'm their Nana. You must love that, being called Nana. And I imagine you're raising them up because Maisha and you, I can't think of a better crew to have leading a family. But, you know, and I know you're a parent as well. And I tell you, even though my daughter is up in age, she's an adult, and I have my grandkids, you never stop parenting. You know, once you're a parent, you're a parent forever, even when they're adults. So they're always in your pocket. They're always asking for information and advice. And then it trickles down to the, uh, you know, the grandkids. It's a wonderful spot to be in. Someday I may experience that. Although my oldest is turning 22 and I've got an 18-year-old. And okay. boy, I'm thinking with my son being 22, I'm thinking about Javad. That's how we got to know each other. Know. Your beautiful son, Javad. And the pride yes. you had with him graduating from CSU and finding such a oh, wonderful life made and Vivian. I mean, Joe Biden speaks about it eloquently, about somebody missing at the Thanksgiving table. That's got to be there with you even these many oh, years yeah. later. Yeah, I miss him deeply. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him and his promise and his potential. You know, our whole society lost goodness and grace in him. And every time I'm out in the public, people kind of share stories with me about how they knew Javad and the kind of things that he did. And it's always something that he did that was kind and that was generous. And I didn't know these things because he never like told me everything he did. But other people tell me their stories and it just puts a sense of pride and joy that I, I think I did okay. I'm sorry he's not with us, but he was a good young man. Javad Marshall Fields was a great young man. And what you've done in his legacy has been amazing. And to an extent, you. your public career was yes. born of that tragedy. I mean, and that's how our relationship began right after the horrific murder of Javad and Vivian, Idaho and Dayton in unincorporated Arapahoe County. It shook me. And then I got a call from you and your daughter and I don't even know what brought know. us together or why you called me the way you did. For me, I was desperate. 
I was desperate and I know I needed some help. And so I would listen on my way to work because, you know, I used to work for United Airlines. And I would listen to your show, you and Capitalist show. And so I knew that you guys were attorney and I always liked the tone and the topic and how you guys presented yourself. And it was just, it was something that caused me to think about what you guys were talking about. I called many attorneys. This is when we had yellow pages. So I went through the yellow pages. I called lots of attorneys. And of course, no one returned my call, but you showed up. And so when I had my press conference, I just, I knew I had to have a press conference. And, you know, what I saw on TV, this is like a law and order that you should have an attorney there. And so I said, oh, yeah, maybe I should do that. Because, you know, I had no blueprint for what happened in my life. And so I needed to have somebody to help guide me through that experience. I want to say this publicly and to all people that are listening to me today is I want to say thank you for showing up at a very critical time in my life. I can remember when you showed up at the Aurora Police Department where I said I was going to host this press conference. The most meaningful thing that you said to me, Craig, was don't leave. Don't leave. Because the police, after Vivian's mom, Christine Wolf, and I, we said our say, and they were trying to sweep us out of the room. But I will never forget when you said, stay and listen to the questions that the journalists are going to have, the reporters are going to have, because that's when you're going to get a little deeper. It's not going to be shallow where it's just you're lending your voice. You're going to hear them ask the questions. And that's when I saw that there were fractures and perhaps maybe some misinformation that they were trying to say about my son's murder. And that just kind of changed my course of relationship with the Aurora Police Department. I have a good relationship with them, but I was able to challenge the things I heard at that press conference. So thank you for giving me that piece of advice. I got contacted, as I recall, by your daughter, Maisha, and I don't Mm -hmm. just show up at press conferences. And then my recollection is meeting with you and just sharing From my 16 years as a prosecutor, I had dealt with parents of murdered children. We talked, and I think you are such a logical person, Rhonda. Even in your grief, I made the point that if this double murder was ever going to be solved, it would have to be the Aurora Police Department. And you were so justifiably outraged at the fact that Javad was going to be a witness in a murder trial, and he was not protected by law enforcement. Or at least outrageous. Right. So you were mad, but you understood that you were going to have to work with these people. And my goodness, Aurora's assigned Gretchen Fronapple, who was the detective, and she did a marvelous job. And in the end, you ended up working alongside Aurora Police Department. Well, you tell this story. You know it a lot better than I do. Well, the thing about it is that the Aurora Police Department solved that crime in eight weeks. Eight weeks. So I know many victims, and I see myself as being a champion for victims' rights and those who've been harmed by crime. And I feel very fortunate, I feel very blessed that I know who committed the crimes against my son and his fiancée. I know they're sitting in Colorado Corrections Facility 
they were on death row, but now we've abolished death row. So they're like, on, they're going to be in jail, hopefully, because I don't know if there's always truth in sentencing. But I don't think they're going to ever get out. And so that was because of Gretchen's work, Detective Fennapple. She did a phenomenal job, and she was able to pull together allies to help her solve the case, even out of state, with partnerships and, you know, talking to witnesses. I mean, they worked the case. Her and her team in the award police department, they solved the crime. They were able to deliver to the district attorney. At that time, it was Carol Chambers, who was the DA. They were able to deliver to them some mature facts to help them get a convicted guilty verdict. Not once, not twice, but three times. Unanimous guilty verdict based on the evidence and the facts that they were able to pull together to share with the jury, you know, what, how this went down. It's an amazing story. And you are the best part of this story because you got activated and you went from United Airlines to a life of public service. You got elected to the legislature and now you can't seem to lose an election. Tell everybody about your latest run and how many times you've been elected. So I ran in 2010 and started serving in 2011. So I've been serving now, Craig, I can't believe this for 10 years. And I just got reelected with 70% of the vote to serve my next four years as a state senator for Senate District 29. My Senate district is very, very diverse. One third is urban. And so that would be like the Colfax East Corridor, Aurora Mall, Havana Motor Mile. And then the suburban area would be Southland and Heritage Bend. And then I also have a rural section of my district that goes all the way out to Watkins and Strasburg and Bennett and Byers and Deer Trail. So when you think about that demographic and for me to have 70% of that vote speaks to the kind of policy and the kind of person I am, despite what people might think, you know, in reference if they agree with me or not, I feel really confident that people kind of support me and the kinds of things that I do to represent that district. Right. And what a district it is. It's also been the scene of the Aurora Theater Massacre. My goodness. Oh, I know. I know. The Aurora Mall. Yes, that's also part of the district as well. And what about where Elijah McClain suffered? Is that in your district? I don't believe so, because see, Colfax is a dividing right. line. And he was in Adams County. Yeah, he was in Adams County. It was the Aurora part of Adams County. Aurora police officers okay. involved. What's going on in Aurora? Do you have confidence? Are you working well with Mike Kaufman? When I think of powerful Aurora politicians, I think of Senator Rhonda Fields. Well, thank you. Yeah, I have a very strong relationship with the Aurora City Council, and that includes the mayor of Aurora. He's still trying to, I believe, navigate and find his way as relates to city government because it's not like being in Congress. But I believe that, you know, all politics should be local and we should be paying attention to local politics. So I think he's finding his way. And with the last election, not this one that we just had in November, but prior to that, when he got elected, we were able to elect some more progressive council people. And I think that's good. That's good for our city because we're very diverse. And so I think they bring a certain sense of style 
that kind of updates the relevancy in reference to what's going on day to day with the people that live in Aurora. I think he's finding his way. He's doing okay. I bet the Aurora Police Department headquarters, the courts building, that's all in your district, correct? And my goodness, the damage it suffered was really bad for Aurora. And then where I work in downtown Denver, where you work as well around the Capitol, you know that the windows are boarded up. What about the destruction in your district and the destruction around the Capitol? That's distressing. What happened there? It was really hard to walk into the Capitol after returning back from our recess to see the damage that had taken place. The graffiti that was like all in the spray paint, some of the negative words describing police. And of course, you know, that hashtag Black Lives Matter, it was everywhere. But the damage that was done cost our taxpayers a lot of money. People were really, really angry. And the same thing happened in Aurora, where people were like angry, and so they took out their anger. I was not out there, but I did see the damage afterwards. And when you see the devastation, you know, it was hard for me to comprehend, you know, how does this make sense? Do you hold Black Lives Matter accountable for that? No, I don't, because, you know, the Black Lives Matter, even though they do have a figurehead, If you look at the people that were marching and doing their silent sit-ins and, and, you know, laying on the ground after they saw George Floyd be assassinated on TV for nearly nine minutes, people were outraged. We've been saying Black Lives Matter for a very long time. I think since maybe... um, It came out of Ferguson, and it was Mike Brown who said, hands up, don't shoot, but... A lot of people felt that that may be a false narrative. But when you see a cop, Derek Chauvin, kneeling on a black man's neck and he dies after eight minutes of that, I mean, there that was a a tipping point in America. But I'm just wondering. Nationally, too. Right. Nationally, everywhere. But the the scenes of looting and rioting really didn't help. And I think that's why. The Republicans did better than they should have this last election, don't you? Oh, (laughs) you know, I I think Republicans decided to come home. You know, I I think even though, I don't know, I, I just, I can't understand. 73, 74 million people. Voting for Donald Trump? Oh my gosh, yes. Voted for Donald Trump. And when you think about what he's done to destroy national norms as relates to the record keeping and, you know, our press conferences. and Right. And I do want to talk about Donald Trump, but weren't you kind of expecting a bigger blue wave, maybe get more colleagues elected to the state Senate? I did expect that. But I think at the end of the day, and I don't know why, I haven't had a chance to really analyze that. The only way I kind of have interpreted is that Republicans came home. Yeah, isn't part of that that they looked at what happened down by the Capitol and at Aurora Police Headquarters and said, I don't want this kind of disarray. And maybe we're going to not vote for Donald Trump, but we don't want people who abide this to take over. Now, I don't, you don't abide it, but I'm wondering where was Michael Hancock? We know where he was Thanksgiving, but, and where was Jared Polis Uh to stop this before it happened? So I'm wondering, 
if there was a little mishandling of the violence in Denver and Aurora by Polis and Hancock? You know, I think there's lessons to be learned. Mm -hmm. I think there's lessons to be learned. So I'm not quite sure I wasn't part of any communication in reference to how much do we tolerate this. But evidently, there was a sense of letting people have their freedom of speech, letting them to peacefully protest. It got a little out of hand. But, and I don't know how we're going to debrief and what lessons we can learn. But what I would like to say is that we have to have better security around the Capitol. As you know, our president of the Senate, his car was damaged. There's images of people kind of jumping on his hood, you know, doing those kinds of things. And it, it was not necessary. I, I personally, I believe that we could have done a little better job of protecting the property but, and protecting life. And still giving people the opportunity of freedom of speech and the ability to gather and protest. Right. And now you have to go back to the Capitol for a special session. How do you feel about that, Rhonda? When does it start? And are you concerned for your safety due to COVID, due to possible protesters? It's got to be unlike any special session in Colorado history. It is special because we're dealing with special and difficult times. Because I think the last number I saw on TV this morning is 263,000 people in the United States have lost their lives due to this COVID virus. And then in the state of Colorado, we are seeing a surge where we're having more and more positive tests. And we're seeing an increase in people being hospitalized because of this disease. And then we have Congress who have not been, I think, as responsive to dealing with the pain points that our businesses are having, our small businesses are having. So our state revenue is not where it needs to be. Our restaurants, you know, you can't sit down and eat. And so when I think about my own personal safety, I think about those who deliver my mail, you know, six days a week. Those when I do go to the grocery store, and they deliver my items to my car if I go inside. Someone's stocking that. So when I think about all the critical workers, essential workers, people in the hospitals, our nurses, our doctors, the people that pick up our garbage, I think if they can do it, as an elected official, I believe that I have a responsibility to do my job as well. And so when we go back to the session, I believe there's seven or eight topics that we're going to be addressing to help compensate or give some kind of relief because of what this health crisis has created in our community. So I feel good about going back. I feel like we have safety protocols in in place. We're all going to be tested before we go in. We'll have regular testing going on. We'll do our social distancing that we, we do anyway. But I'm going to do my job. Well, good for you. What about the GOP? A lot of those guys refuse to wear masks. How are you going to handle that, being in the same room with them? You know, I am chair. I'm chair of two committees. I'm chair of Health and Human Services in the Senate, and I'm also chair of Capital Development. So when we go back to session, I won't be chair, but as chair prior to our signing die, you know, I would confront my colleagues if they did not have on their mask. So as chair, anyone has the right to challenge someone if they're not appropriately wearing their mask. And so I'm hoping that when we return, that 
that would still be the criteria that's in place. Because it's, it's about protecting yourself, it's about respecting your colleagues in that committee, and the staff members that are there. I mean, they have to go back to home to their families as well. So it's like the right thing to do. So some, most, I would say, I would say 99%, maybe 89, no, I would say maybe 93%. It's a very high percentage of the people who are elected that wear their mask, especially when we're on the floor. Because, you know, the only way you can be on the Senate floor or the House floor is if you're elected. So it's a very tight-knit group. Not everyone has the authority to be in those chairs because you have to be elected. And most of the people, I don't know about the House, but most of the people, yeah, I think, I, I would say a high percentage of people comply with the rules. What if in your committee, a Republican says, I'm not wearing a mask and you can't make me, Chairwoman Fields? Yeah, you know, take me there. I'm ready. I'm not ready. I'm not afraid of any fight. I know you're not, but it's become politicized because of a guy named Donald Trump. And before we leave the subject of the I violence know. around the Capitol and Aurora, yeah. I, I blame Donald Trump, who always threw fuel on the fire. And some of those yes, attacks around the country were really by white nationalists, white supremacists, at the Boogaloo yes. Boys, the Proud Boys. Let's talk about that. That's a new aspect okay. of politics that I just can't believe is going on. But I'm glad that it's been illustrated. There is a white supremacist movement in this country. Were you aware of how big it was or how many people would support a white supremacist philosophy like that espoused by Donald Trump? Yeah. Uh, you know, I can tell you that, you know, I've dealt with racism all my life. I've been fighting all my life for my rights as a woman and then as a black woman. So for me, it's not foreign to me, but what was difficult is how public it became and how they were given voice through our president. In reference to saying, well, you know, we have good people on both sides. You know, he gave them like a green light. It's okay to be that way. It's okay to have hate. It's okay to voice your opinion as relates to, you know, people of diversity, whatever he was trying to do. But that was the difficult part for me is how he was able to stoke those feelings, which I thought, you know, we were taking a turn in reference to accepting diversity and blackness and differences. And now it looks we're taking a step back. We really are. And it, it's it's unbelievable. I, I had Spencer Haywood on, a boyhood hero of mine, Olympic oh, yeah. athlete. And we were talking about Donald Trump and he sort of wanted to stay away from it because he's not a politician and he's trying to sell a book. But I said, now it appears that Donald Trump is a racist. And he goes, do you think? You know, it's like. He is a racist, and I acknowledge that, and that's why I departed even being near the Trump train. Am I right, Rhonda? Is he a racist? You are. Yes, he is a racist, and so was his father. Right. And if you know anything about Trump, he has a whole history. His whole family has a history 
of creating these discriminatory practices against black people. Just think about the Central Park Five. I mean, there was this just a documentary not too long ago that's on TV, and he still does not, you know, acknowledge that they're not guilty. And just think about how he talked about our former president, Barack Obama. Or as he calls him, Barack Hussein Obama, and he was out with that birther theory, which was at its core racist. Yeah. And then you think about some of the things that he does. He's like a dictator. I know. He doesn't like black people. I know. I don't think he, I shouldn't say it like that, but I don't think he likes black people. And when you think about how he's trying to attack the vote and the electoral college vote, he's really going after black votes. Definitely. He accuses all the fraud happened in the inner cities that are dominated by African-Americans, Detroit, Atlanta, Milwaukee. I know. And the way he talks about black women and women in general. Abby Phillip on CNN, she's a superstar and he would demean her. I mean, some say, well, he's an equal opportunity discriminator. He just went off on Brian Mason, who's from Colorado. I don't know if you know that. I think his twin brother is the new elected DA in Adams County, 17th JD. Okay. I did not know that. Oh, you're right. And yesterday, Trump said he was a lightweight, but Jeff Mason, who's the White House reporter for Reuters, even though he got belittled by the president, he got some answers about, yeah, I will leave if the Electoral College goes the wrong way. But it was just so illustrative that Trump will demean almost any kind of person. And Jeff Mason's a white guy. But the bottom line is he makes it about a person's race. And it's just sickening. And the other reality, if you think about it, Rhonda, and I'm sure you do, You and I were involved together when a particularly hateful person started sending dangerous, threatening letters to you, and he got prosecuted. That was a frightening situation, and that guy was- It was. I hope he's changed, but he was like right in the sweet spot of the Donald Trump voter. He loved guns. He loved threatening black women. I just thought it was disgusting. He paid a price for it, and hopefully he's better, but- My God, I just am trying to reconcile myself with the fact that 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, even though he showed what a racist he is. It's disturbing. And I don't know how to interpret that. Like you said, I expected our results to be a lot stronger in November in reference to, you know, reclaiming the Senate. We weren't able to reclaim the Senate, but we were able to reclaim at least the White House. So we still have, evidently, we, we, we just have more work to be done. I don't even know where to begin. But I know that when we go get back to the session on Monday, and right now we're scheduled to be there for three days, and our topics are to address small business, child care support, food insecurities, and there's some other items that we're trying to, uh, utility bills, housing and eviction notices and those kinds of things. We're trying to give some relief because with this COVID-19 People are not working full-time. People have lost their jobs. Unemployment is on the rise. Um, And people need to have some relief. So that's what we're going to try and do, despite what they're doing in Congress. We're going to do our work here in Colorado. And I'm really excited that the the governor has called this special session. 
so that we can use, I think it's like 40 million, I don't know, there's a, we'll be, we're going to be able to get some money to people's hands so they can kind of deal with the crisis and the challenges they're facing just before the Christmas holiday season. I hope Governor Polis will be out of quarantine by then. And then Michael Hancock, he's in the doghouse. Any comment on the Hancock kerfuffle? I mean, every week we have a song for my show and my troubadour came up with do what I say, not what I do. You're a political leader, powerful state senator. Yeah, I would just say that I can relate to what it's like to not be with your family members. So I, I can see him being pulled and tugged in reference to, you know, do I stay? Do I go? I think a lot of people have been in that situation. And people make decisions that they think that are, you know, right or wrong, that's best for them. But I feel really, really blessed that I was able to be with my family. My family only lives a couple, you know, they don't live too far from me. And they're here a lot. And so we are within our bubble anyway. But, you know, I can relate. I know it's difficult. It's difficult. Right. I mean, he would have been alone. And, you know, we can all say I had my little unit, my 18-year-old, my beautiful wife, and myself. And that was that was cool. It wasn't like Thanksgiving normally. I wish I had grandkids like you did and all of that. But the thought of being alone on Thanksgiving, that's a hard one. It's hard. And I think most family, I'm not just going to talk about the traditional black family, because normally my home, I always have an open home for Thanksgiving, and I have like lots of people around, but we weren't able to do that. Typically, you know, people bring over dishes and, you know, people come in and out, you know, it's a tradition of giving thanks. And so you give thanks to your neighbors, your friends, your support system. So, you know, unfortunately, You know, he left town. Yeah. Anyway, here's the thing you won't have to tackle at the special session. Anything to do with Colorado voting, because our system works great. Mail-in balloting has really become the gold standard, despite what Donald Trump says. Can you believe this guy and his big lie about fraud? He, He keeps saying it's fraud. He said in Georgia he lost because, quote, you have a fraudulent system. You ever heard such nonsense out of an elected leader? There's just no evidence to support what he's saying. There's just no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the United States. I mean, there was a commission that he put together a long time ago. They couldn't even find it. And then in Colorado, and I was a sitting House representative at the time, we passed that legislation in 2013. So in 2013... We have uh, passed legislation to have mail-in ballot. We've been doing it since 2013. It is the most secure, protected measure in our state. We are the gold standard. And I can't believe, like, places like New York, that you would think that would be contemporary, that they would have the same-day voting. What? But now, because of COVID, you know, they made it so you could have mail-in. I'm hoping that many other states lawmakers will choose to do this as a regular norm. Right. But here's how we know it's it's baloney. And you sat through the trials of the evil people who killed Javad. And you know what evidence is about better than most. And they don't have any evidence. They have some anecdotes and they put out 
a worldwide beg for affidavits and they produced this and they produced that. But the bottom line is the results are consistent throughout the country. And they talk about conspiracy theories. And let me tell you, as a member of a minority group, minorities always suffer when conspiracy theories take hold. This is because of what the globalists are doing or the elites or the blacks or the Jews, you know. The whole system is rigged, and he's got a percentage of his followers believing it. But let's end on a good note, because Colorado, I think we rejected Donald Trump more than any other state. His margin of loss went from 4% against Hillary to 13%, and that's a big increase. And he's toxic in Colorado. Donald Trump which reflects the good judgment of the people of Colorado. And then the guy who's really impressed me is Joe Biden. I thought he might be too old over the hill, but he's got a second wind. And I'm loving what he's doing, picking Kamala Harris to be VP and his cabinet. Yay! Yay! Talk to us about that and the pride you must feel as an African-American woman that Kamala Harris is going to be vice president of the United States. Yay. It's about time. It's about time that we trust women to lead. Because when you have a woman that's in a leadership position, I think that we lead differently than men. And I think that what we bring is a sense of trying to get consensus, a sense of being firm, but yet kind and deliberate in our approach moving forward. Kamala is smart. She's capable. She's brilliant. She's experienced. She's been a, a senator. She's been the attorney general. So she brings a lot to the table. And she's not afraid to use her voice. And when she uses her voice, it doesn't crack. And, you know, she, she has a great command of the facts and how to express herself. I am so excited that she is going to be vice president of the United States of this America. And I think she is a great compliment to former Vice President Biden. I think they're going to be a great team. And I think he respected her enough, despite whatever we saw on the debate stage, that he trusted her enough that he doesn't want to have just yes people around him like what we see with Trump. But you have to be loyal and you have to tell me how good I am every 15 minutes or whatever he expected. He knows that he's going to get, you know, the truth. And she knows how to, tr- she knows how to speak truth to power. So I'm excited about that addition to the ticket. I am too, because she gets to bring a Jewish guy along with her. Her husband, Doug, and she's taken yes. being Kamala the Mamala to his two kids. And I think that really has rounded her out. I happened to be at the APAC event in Washington where she gave a speech and announced, hey, I just married a Jewish dude. And I thought that was wonderful. She's got a little bit of everything going. She really does. And she's a reflection of America. I think that's right. We're, we're blended. You know, there's so many blended families. You know, not everybody lives on easy street and not everyone's white. That is the big difference. And I think the next generation, your kids, your grandkids, I think they're going to be better than us. I think Martin Luther King Jr. had it right that the arc of history bends towards justice. And 
hopefully Donald Trump was a blip. The fact that he got so many votes gives me pause. But I think that our kids will make this society more colorblind and more fair for everybody. Don't you, Rhonda? That is my prayer, Greg. That's, that's my prayer. That, you know, we, we have to move beyond the, the, the 50s and the 60s in reference to segregation and Jim Crow laws. We have to move beyond that because our communities are diverse. You know, I represent Aurora. In our public schools, in Aurora public schools, they speak like 35 different languages. So we, 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 we can't, it's, it's not going to be like it was back then. Right. It's not going to be. And I think that might be what Trumpism is about. A lot of people can't accept it. I look forward to it. To me, it was white men who embarrassed themselves this last election by voting way too much for Donald Trump. But hopefully the criminal justice system well, what's will work. up with your party? Say that again? What's up with the Republican Party in reference to no one standing up to Trump? I, I think it's terrible. I, I, don't, I, mean, I, I, I don't understand. I know Republicans. And they're good people. Most of them are. But no one's saying anything. They're silent. Why? Well, I, I can tell you why. Because they're okay. afraid of the Trump base. It's just like on Trump radio. They won't tolerate anybody ripping Donald Trump. And the silence of the lambs right now, it's shameful. Bill Owens finally spoke out. Way to go, Governor Owens. A little too late. Where were the Republicans when... Donald Trump was denying any kind of orderly transition. I mean, that's hateful to America, wasn't it? And every Republican who was silent, they should be ripped. I've had Cole West on my show. I've had Vic Mitchell. I've had all the Republicans willing to speak out. Andrew Strutman last week. But they're few and far between, Rhonda. I can name them on one hand. Yeah, it's just very disappointing. It's just very disappointing because I know that they don't agree, but they were nodding like they did and going along with the show. And that just that's just not ethical to me. Well, let's see how it turns out. We have to survive the next 50 or so days. And I'm really worried about Donald Trump. He's even said, like he warned Marie Yovanovitch, he said to Zelensky during that call, that woman's going to go through some things. And now... He just told the American people on Thanksgiving, a lot's going to happen between now and January 20th. Can you believe it? I, believe I feel him. threatened by this president. And I believe him. He's going to, I believe he is going to do damage on his way out. And so he's already done damage. So we'll get through to the other side, just like he had to, he, he tried everything he could to undo all of um, Obama's efforts. When Biden gets in there, he's going to have to kind of undo and get us back to a sense of normal business practice with values and integrity and truthfulness. Truthfulness. This man lies all the time. I'm talking about Trump. Right. It's unbelievable. You know, we're on a podcast, so I call him the bullshitter in chief. He's so full of bullshit. I love that. He's a con man. And kids are watching him. And the, the way he talks, the, his, his language, his colorful language, he should not be saying some of the, these things. Well, that's why I feel I free to, to say bullshit, because he's said it many times, because he is full of bullshit. And when he says uh, that he, he thinks is. he got cheated by fraud, 
He's the king of fraud. He's a mess. He's a hot mess. He is. And right now, Diaper Don is trending, which means he might have made a hot mess in his pants. Let's leave it right there, Rhonda Fields. Isn't that a good image? Okay. Yes. Well, thanks for this opportunity to talk to you and your uh, listeners as well. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Rhonda, you are the best. Have a good special session and stay safe, okay? Okay. Let's stay in touch. Bye. Bye. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Oh, troubadour. Oh, troubadour. Why do you laugh in my singing? Everybody does, but it's still not nice. Oh, I like your singing. How are you, Craig? Great. You encourage me to harmonize on our walks together. And we do. What is that song? All I get to say is Brother John is dead. No, he's gone. That's, oh, Brother uh, John is gone, right. Brother John, that's called Brother John, and it's the Neville Brothers. Right. And we start singing, Brother, hey, Brother. Brother John right, it's a call, and, call and response. Yep, yep. One, one of my favorite bands from New Orleans. I like that. And I sure enjoyed talking with your dad, Henry Gunders. I've gotten such positive reaction. And I think this week's song has to be tied to Henry as well. How's that? Because it's a father talking to his son. And I know you have two daughters. And Henry had a disruptive son like you. So I have to figure that you were channeling your father, Henry Gunders. 
well, you know, I haven't thought of that. It, it's, it's probably like, it, it, in part, it, it could be true. Tell everybody about your tremendous, perfect, on-time song called Do As I Say, Not As I Do. Don't well, do what I do. I'm, I'm mangling the it's title. It's close enough. That's okay. That's okay. Do what I say, don't do as I do. Or don't do what I do. See, even I mangle my own song. But the setting is a father talking to his son and giving him advice that the son is unwilling to take. The son says, come on, Dad, you were wild just like me. Look in the mirror. And the father says, do as I say, don't do what I do. Right. But last time I checked, you have two daughters. Well, I, yeah, that's right. But, you know, I can, I can project. Part of, part of writing songs is projecting, Craig, onto, onto and, and possibly it's what even, yeah, as, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought of it, but my father and I, we, don't, we, always, we didn't always see eye to eye. We, we always had, we always kept our relationship, you know, good and our communication was there. But I was, I was a pretty wild kid. I was going down a different path than he had envisioned. When did you write this tremendous song? I wrote that song uh, sitting by a fountain in New Orleans a couple of years, I guess maybe three or four years ago during Jazz Fest. I can hear the New Orleans influence. It's got mm-hmm. the blues, it's got horns, it's got piano, yep. it's got everything. Right. Yep. That one, I got some buddies of mine who play horns. They did a really nice job. I wanted to give that a more, you know, a, a fuller sound. I'm happy with the song. You are ahead of your time, but perfect for right now. How about Mayor Michael Hancock of Denver flying off to Houston and then on to Mississippi on Thanksgiving, even though he just told the people of Denver to stay home? Do as I say, don't do what I do. Well, you know, he's got some answering to do there, but I don't think that detracts from his message. You know, his cautioning people is, is based on science. The fact that he didn't do it, I guess that's something he's, he's got to answer to. Oh, he does. The hypocrisy is a killer. Gavin Newsom in California, if the leaders are taking chances, then how can they really tell us it's all that serious? But I do think it's serious, and you've got a seriously good song. Your last words before everybody listens to your classic, Do As I Say. Oh, my last words? Well, well you can talk as long as you want. You are the troubadour I'm, of this show. I guess my last words are that fathers and sons should always be able to talk to one another. In this case, the relationship is challenged. But in the end, if you listen, the father says you're a good son. You know, you, you've been a good son. And I think keeping those lines of communication open is key to those people you love. We always come to different places in our lives and uh, letting the people who, who are important to us be aware of what we're doing is important and letting them know what we're doing, but keeping those lines of communication, that's my, those are my words of, uh, of advice. Beautifully said. And I'm only ahead of you in one regard. I've been married to Trish 26 years as of Thanksgiving. We got that's married fantastic. Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, November 26th in 1994. And you got married when? In 1995 or six? Right. And yeah, the next year. No, we're, we just celebrated our 25th. Right. But you are ahead of us because you had kids earlier. You're beautiful, Sarah and Rachel. And we have learned from you, even though we have two sons, Ben and Sam, you are an exceptional father, Dave Gunders and Lisa, magnificent mother. So with that compliment, let's hear your beautiful song. You be well, and to the family too, Craig. Thank you. Thank you.
like it, not one little bit. I tried to guide him, maybe give him a tip. Things could be simple, but you see his resign to that reckless behavior. Got an untracked mind, cause I learned a few things when I was away. Gets a whole lot better once you learn to act sane. I save you the trouble of some big mistakes. He said, look in the mirror, Dad. <laughs> Give me a break. I said, do what I say. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Do what I do. I guess everybody got to learn for themselves. Can't get no wisdom from nobody else. I try to think of something so he'll understand. He's already out that door with the keys in his hand. And over his shoulder, underneath his breath, he says, Don't ask me no questions, Dad. Anyway, you can guess. I heard you was crazy and wild, tell me true. I said, I say, don't you do what I do? Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that you know, i have a friend who's really really good and really really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form 
because they don't quite just finances don't make sense to them so you don't want to pick that type of person you want to pick somebody who can understand finances you want to pick somebody who's trustworthy who will carry out your decisions and if you can do it you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt dan levitt sandler training hi dan craig sent me craig silverman that's him man can i tell you a good story about craig i'd love it once craig took his dog tuffy to a singing competition for what purpose well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Boy, I've been trying for a long time to get this next guest into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I think I asked him when he was a lawyer, and then he became a judge. Now he's not just a judge, but he's an award-winning judge. He's judge in the Denver County Court. His name is Gary Jackson. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thank you, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's not often that I speak to somebody with more Denver experience than me, but you are definitely it. Tell everybody about your roots in this community. Well, Craig, I was born in 1945 in Denver, Colorado General Hospital. At that time, it was located on 8th and Colorado Boulevard. My parents, Mancilia and Floyd Jackson, my mother came to Colorado in about 1926, when she was about four years old. My dad came to Colorado in 1945, a master sergeant in the U.S. Army. After suffering a World War II injury, he was stationed in Laramie, Wyoming, and he would come down to Denver for USO trips. He met my mother, fell in love with her, they married in 45. I was born in 45. And so I've got a 75-year history in Denver, Colorado. Now, that is amazing. You've got me beat with the, that 75-year stuff, but my family goes back a little further than yours. We didn't have to come through Wyoming and all of that, don't you know? About the turn of the century, my ancestors had the good judgment to get out of the old country and get to Denver, Colorado. What was it about Denver that your parents found attractive to make it their home forever? Well, it really started with my great-grandfather. So he was the first one to come to Colorado in 1919. His name was William Pitts. 
He was a part of the great migration of black families out of the South to the North and the West. He came to Colorado because he had a relative that had suffered a World War I injury and was being treated at the VA hospital. And so he came to Colorado to visit his relative and made the decision that there were more opportunities in Colorado than there were for him in Missouri. He was the son of a slave master and a, a woman that had been enslaved. And so he had learned to read and write. This is in Missouri, learned to read and write in Missouri, learned the trade of being a carpenter. And so in Missouri prior to 1919, he was building barns and churches in Missouri. But upon coming to Colorado and finding that there was less segregation in Colorado than what he was facing in uh, Missouri, he decided to bring his family to Colorado. And so that would have been my grandmother and her husband, and then, of course, my mother and her older brother. So the four of them, my grandmother, grandfather, mother, my, my Uncle Johnny, all arrived in Colorado in about 1926. So it was coming to Colorado for a better opportunity than what was the oppressive situation that they were living in Missouri. That's fascinating. My dad was born July 13, 1926. He grew up with a lot of the Jewish people on the Old West Side. Where did your family reside? Well, we lived in North Cherry Creek. So that's an interesting story because we all know what North Cherry Creek is today. Back in 1919, when my great-grandfather came, he was able to buy three lots, two on Garfield Street, third and Garfield Street, one on Fifth and Harrison. So he bought three lots. They each cost about $50 per lot. And the reason why was that the city dump was over on First and Steel. So this was an area that was where poor people lived, it was an area that it was farmland. I can remember my great-grandfather's home that he built on 3rd and Garfield. Right next to it was a framed home that had a large chicken coop in the backyard. So uh, there were scattered homes in that area uh, on our block. It was probably only four or five houses that were built on the block back in the, uh, in the 20s. That was the outskirts of town, right? It was the outskirts because the first suburban department store was Sears that was built in 1955 over on First and University. So it was considered the outskirts of the town of Denver because just south of First Avenue was what was called Cowtown. That's what is known as Glendale now. It's really something. And then to go as far south as Hamden, well, that was sort of the sticks. Now you're bringing me into the picture because I was born December of 55. And boy, I remember the old Cherry Creek shopping area with Bowers, a good place to eat in the Denver Dry. You had to see that constructed probably, did you? Well, I did. I did because one of my uncles, one of my uncles was seven years older than I. So I can remember 
he had a job doing the landscaping at Sears. I must have been maybe eight or nine years of age. I would ride down with him on the bicycle, drop him off at Sears where he was doing landscaping, ride back home, and then come back uh, at five o'clock to pick him up to bring him to bring him back home. Nice. I, I do remember when Sears was built. I remember when the Target went into what you call the Cowtown, Glendale, the first Target in Colorado, and I got to go in on the pre-opening day because my Aunt Debbie worked there. So that was pretty cool. That's kind of a modern place to talk about Target. Do you remember Andy's smorgasbord? Yeah, I do remember that. You know why I remember that? I remember that because I had a homecoming date in 1966, CU Boulder, and after the homecoming football game, we drove down to Denver and went to Andy Smorgasbord for dinner. Oh boy! So I remember, I remember that well. But it that was, a, was it was uh, a, it was a high class smorgasbord, and they had all you can eat shrimp, which I just thought was amazing. Well, like I say, it was a homecoming date. That was a pretty special time back in those years because you'd uh, wear a coat and tie to the football game. And uh, that may have been the first date I had that year. So uh, we did something special by going to the to Andy Smorgasburg after the game. Wow, that is quite a memory. So tell us about your Denver public school experience, because here I am about 10 years behind you, and I think we went to some of the same schools, although I went to Ellison Ballas, you went to Steck, and then where'd you go to junior high? Well, I started at Steck, so I would have started at Steck in about 1950, and that would have been kindergarten. I remember at Steck for the whole time I was at Steck, uh, I was the only black kid in, the, in in my in my class. My mother had gone to Steck after starting off at Bromwell, but she ended up going to Steck when Steck was built. So I followed my mother at Steck. From Steck, I went to Hill Junior High School. That was 1957. That was the year Hill was actually built, so it was a new school. I was at Hill for three years, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And then George Washington was built in 1960. So I was the first class to go to George Washington High School that went there all three years. So uh, it opened in 1960. I graduated in 1963 from Hill. That's amazing. Yeah, I went to Hill and the GW. And for those who don't know, Steck and Hills, they share a playground because they're really on virtually the same property. Steck what? Steck to the west. Well, uh, sharing that playground like you, Craig, that was where I first thought I was going to be a basketball star was playing basketball on the playground at Hill Junior High School. That was my notion that my career was going to end up me being the next Oscar Robertson. I thought that too. It occurs to me that maybe I went to a Hill playing against better competition because we went through desegregation. So there were a lot of black kids at Hill when I went there. How about for you? No, there weren't any black kids at all. When I was playing basketball, it would be on the playgrounds at Hill, 
I also thought that the best, better competition was at the 20th Street Gym. So I, I would go to the 20th Street Gym, which is over on about 20th and Curtis. I would play uh, over there after school and during the summertime because there were more of the black players that were playing uh, at uh, the 20th Street Gym. And I can remember this. You probably did the same thing. We had a lot of games that we played at Delari Air Force Base, going up to the gym at Delari Air Force Base, playing other high school kids and playing some of the service guys at Delari. Did you do that, Craig? No. I would say we played a lot of games at the Jewish Community Center. I don't know if that was part of your youth, but it's not far from where you grew up. But I played a lot at Hill Junior High. We would have really competitive games. And then, of course, I played at George for Bill Weimer. He was there when you were there, wasn't he? Yeah, he was my coach. Bill Weimer was my coach at George Washington. So I started playing for him as a junior. I wasn't as good as you, Craig. So I didn't get to play really until I was a junior. Okay, well, I didn't get to play varsity until I was a junior. And then I also played as a senior. And so Bill Weimer uh, was my basketball coach. And so was Rick Fisher part of that team? No, Rick Fisher is probably, let me see, Rick Fisher is five years younger than I. So uh, Rick Fisher would have played with my younger brother. My brother was two years younger than I, and my brother Larry would have played with Rick Fisher and Jake Green and Bobby Naus and uh, some of those players. So they would have been two to four years behind me. It's interesting because my mom went to East High School. My dad went to West. And Coach Weimer, of course, won a state championship at East. And then he came over to George and won a championship as well, I think, with that Rick Fisher team. He was a great coach for me. He actually won one earlier. He won one in 1960, the very first year that he came over to George Washington. On that team was Bobby Berenbaum. There was Mark Levine, Bobby Berenbaum. These were guys on that 1960 team that went uh, to Allstate. I didn't realize that. That sounds like some Jewish kids playing on the team. They were. It was. It was I know. The team, know. team was probably half Jewish. Who's that? Bill Weimer? No, I'm talking about the 19. Yeah, the 1960. Team that won oh, the state. The team was half Jewish. Yeah, the team was half Jewish. Yeah, it was. In 73, we were ranked number one all year. We fell apart at the state tournament where we had some dissension. But we had 12 guys on the team, four white guys, four black guys, and four Jews. Now, that's perfectly integrated squad, although it fell apart with dissension, which was sad. What was GW like when you went there? Were you still one of the few African-Americans? Yeah, I still was. I would have to say that in my graduating class, there may have been three African-American students out of 695. You know, there were ups and downs at George Washington. And when when I considered the ups, the ups were, despite wanting to be a all-pro basketball guard, I also wanted to be an engineer. You know, they may have characterized me as a nerd because my favorite classes were algebra, math analysis, calculus. 
I had a favorite professor, Morris Hoffman. He was my math professor for many of those courses. At George Washington, I had my very first black teacher in 13 years of Denver Public Schools. I had one black teacher in 13 years, and his name was Mr. It was Percy Jeffries. He was my math analysis teacher. And then I love Latin. I took four years of Latin. One of my favorite teachers at George Washington was a Mr. Spencer, the Latin teacher. But because of what I considered to be the, the social issues at the time, I never went to a dance. I cannot remember ever being invited to a house party at George Washington because there was just a separation between what black people and white people did. And as a part of that separation, we uh, went to class together, we played ball together, but we didn't socialize together. Oh, that stinks. Did you have friends growing up? You must have had some white buddies. Of course. I had buddies, but like I say, the buddies didn't result in, like I say, house parties or social situations. We were buddies in class. We were buddies when we competed on the basketball court or baseball. But uh, during that time frame, uh, we did not socialize after school. That's interesting. And there was a kid who I was friends with growing up, and we never, you know, had sleepovers. And my parents explained that they probably weren't comfortable And they felt it was because I was Jewish. And probably that's what you're talking about. There was just a gap. There weren't sleepovers. You weren't as welcome in a house. Is that what you're talking about, Judge? That's what I'm talking about. That is exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, those were the social differences that were maintained during that period of time. And for me, you know, that continued into college. Because in college, there was not the type of social situations where you went to the fraternity parties or anything like that. Those things just did not happen in the 60s. That was just the social differences that were taking place. That's fascinating. Would you ever invite the buddies over to your house? And would they say no or make an excuse? or No. Uh, well, let me just say, one of my best friends from kindergarten on, and he's still a best friend, Steve Myers, Jewish. Steve would come to my house, but I was not allowed inside his house. Hmm. Did you two ever talk about that? What does he say? Well, we've talked about it now. We didn't talk about it then. We just accepted that that's the way it was back in, in those days. I didn't, I didn't really question it. We have, of course, now as seniors, we have talked about it, and he has explained to me how how much it hurt him that he was able to come over to my house, spend the night at my house, but that his mother and his uncle, because his dad had died, and so his, his uncle lived in the house, his mother and, and uncle did not welcome me into their home. So he said that it was agonizing for him, but we didn't we didn't talk about those things. So you went to CU. You must have graduated. Did you keep studying Latin and calculus and those sorts of things? Or did you finally wise up and realize you're going to be a lawyer? You don't need to know that crap. Well, what happened was I went away to University of Redlands in Redlands, California. I got a academic scholarship to Redlands. 
I also got a letter from the basketball coach who invited me to play on the basketball team. So I ended up going to Redlands. If you remember in 1963, when I went off to Redlands, these were the three events that occurred the fall of 63. There was the March on Washington. That was in August of 63. September of 63, there was the bombing of the uh, Black Church in Birmingham. And then in November of 63, there was the assassination of John Kennedy. Those were three social issues that, when I look back on it, had an impact on me after. After I transferred from Redlands to come back to CU, at CU, the first person I met on campus was Sonny Flowers. Craig, you know Sonny, because Sonny was a renowned African-American lawyer here in Colorado that recently died. But in meeting Sonny, I had the opportunity to meet a lawyer for the very first time. And that was his dad, William Harold Flowers, who was a lawyer in Arkansas and was a renowned, iconic lawyer in Arkansas during the civil rights era, where he was involved in his private practice of attempting to desegregate Arkansas. Sonny's mom was also a lawyer. So by meeting Sonny and Sonny becoming one of my very, very good friends at, in Boulder, I had a chance to meet two lawyers. And based upon knowing what Sonny's father was doing in Arkansas, the circumstances with the Kennedy assassination, the circumstances in Alabama with the bombing, the March on Washington, I made a decision to switch my major from being an engineer to political science and wanting to be a lawyer. The impact that my relationship with Sonny really changed my path in terms of feeling that I could do more as a lawyer than I could as an engineer. Gosh, we all miss Sonny Flowers. What a great man he was. I've been savoring the trial talk that Colorado Trial Lawyers Association puts out, our monthly magazine. So many stories have been dedicated to Sonny. I just regarded him as a warm and friendly presence every time I encountered him. We talked sports. We talked law. He was so universally respected, but nobody was a best friend like you, Gary Jackson, with Sonny Flowers. This had to hit you very hard, and I'm glad we talked about him. Were you guys the same grade at CU? Yeah, we were. So we were the same grade. We were about the same physique. Sonny was an inch taller. He weighed about 175 pounds. I was six feet two, 175 pounds. So we could wear each other's clothes. We could uh, ride each other's bikes. Sonny um, was able to uh, purchase a car, I think, his sophomore or junior year. So he had the car on campus, and we ended up rooming together for two years. We ended up going to law school the same year. So we uh, made a decision to both attend CU Law School in 1967. That's an interesting story, too, because in 1967, Thurgood Marshall became our first uh, African-American member of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Sonny, because of his dad, and his dad's prominence in Arkansas, his dad became the president 
1953 of the National Bar Association. That's the Association of Black Lawyers, the National Association of Black Lawyers, and the, the reason for that association was back in those years, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, black lawyers couldn't be members of the American Bar Association. So Sonny, because of his dad's presidency, renown in Arkansas, Sonny's dad knew Thurgood Marshall. So I can remember when Sonny was in college, he had the opportunity to go back to Washington, D.C. and observe Thurgood Marshall argue a case in the Supreme Court when he was a member of the NAACP legal defense team. Wow. So uh, Sonny's presence in my life, his parents' presence in my life, Led me, led me to go to go to law school, and to the finest law school in America, if I say so myself. I really had a great experience at CU Law School because it was small. I didn't really like CU as a university; that seemed too big. But CU Law School is intimate. I had a good experience there. But what about you? Now you had Sunny with you, but were there many other black students? No, there were probably uh, two in our class. So it was Sonny and I and Jim Cotton. So there were three black students in the class out of 150. At that time, out of 150, there were only four women. There were no Latinos in my class. There were no Asian Americans in my class. CU Law School had not really diversified itself until probably my second and third year, where CU had a dean that decided to uh, reach out and bring in black students, women, Latino students. One of the family of black students that came in were the Tate family. Uh, you may remember this, Penfield Tate, uh, and this is Penfield Tate Sr. He came to CU Law School in 1968. He brought his two brothers with him from Ohio. They were in the first year class in 68. Penfield Tate ended up being the first black mayor of, of Boulder. Right. And I've had his son in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and boy, does he take pride in his papa, and who can blame him? Well, uh, his son, Penfield Tate III, is also a good friend of mine, and I've had Penfield Tate III over to my house several different times, so he's a good friend of mine, too. What a small world, but it's still Boulder, Colorado. I was there 10 years later, and I have to say that our class was much more integrated, especially when it came to women. When I went to law school, I think half our class were women. And when I stepped into the Denver DA's office as an intern, along with Velveeta Golightly, Michael Cohen, Karen Steinhauser, and Bill Ritter, our hiring agent and our mentor was Brooke Wanneke, another strong woman. So I encountered a lot of strong women along the way. What about you? What was it like? Was it a male-dominated thing when you got out? And how did it change in those final years of law school? Well, let me, let me just talk to you about some of the mentors that I had in law school that were Jewish. You may remember Norm Brownstein and Steve Farber. They were in the class two years ahead of me, both of them. I would, would have been a first-year law student. They would have been third-year law students. Both of them, despite the fact that I was a first-year law student, became very friendly with me. We created a friendship in 1967 that 
has lasted until today. I don't know if Steve Farber and, and, and Norm Brownstein have been in your lounge, but... Uh, the late Steve Farber has, and I know that he was quite a player at Denver North High. Here you are representing GW. Just tell me, as a fellow GW grad, that you could handle him in a hoop game. <laughs> uh, wasn't even close. Wasn't even close. You I mean, a, we played... <laughs> you I have to laugh because... Right. Yeah, I I have to laugh because it wasn't even close in terms of their shot from the corner and my shot from the corner. So mine was going in 40% of the time and theirs was probably going in 25% of the time. I got you. But let me tell you that my old man was their baseball and football coach for the Hawks at Sloan's Lake. He had both Brownstein and Farber when he was in law school coaching them as young teens. So it's a small world when you grow up in Denver, but that's nice that those guys were nice to you. Who else were Jewish people who helped you along the way? Well, let's start with my third year of law school. I had a great opportunity from the Denver District Attorney's Office to be an intern. They started an intern program in 1969. Mike McKevitt was the DA at the time. And I needed a job in order to pay room and board up at CU Law School. So this was a job in which I would drive down to Denver basically 20 hours a week. It ended up that once I graduated from law school, the Denver District Attorney's Office hired me. Once again, that was Mike McKevitt that did the hiring. But two of the mentees in the office that I considered to be mentors of mine were Lynn Chesler and Irv Edinburgh. They were both of the Jewish religion. Both of them took me under their wing. Both of them helped guide me when I was in the DA's office. But here's the, the most important Jewish person in my life. And that was Zeta Weinshank. Zeta Weinshank was the trial judge that I got assigned to. Uh, Zeta Weinshank was the very first full-time woman judge in the state of Colorado in 1964. She had graduated from Harvard Law School, cum laude. She uh, could not get a job in one of the major law firms in Denver, but she ended up being able to get selected to be a municipal court in Denver. I find it my good fortune that when I was hired as a district attorney in Denver, and Craig, you'll remember this. There probably were 400 DAs across the state. I was the only black DA in 1970 across the state. But I got assigned, I got assigned to Zeta Weinshank's court, and she was brilliant. She basically uh, was my uh, trial judge that, that I was in front of for a year. And what I say is I learned my trial skills under Zeta Weinshank, who ended up being the very first female district court judge in the state and the very first female U.S. district court judge in, in our region. So uh, I had that type of tutelage. Those are amazing characters. Your name dropping is extraordinary. Len Chesler is still going strong. What a legend he was in the Denver DA's office and in private practice. I had the honor of appearing in front of Judge Edinburgh many times as prosecutor myself. Plus, he used to do a lot of training work, but Zeta Weinshank 
Of course, my dad would talk about her. My dad was a Denver lawyer, his father a Denver lawyer. And I believe Judge Weinshank's husband was a lawyer in a big Denver law firm as well. Am I right? He, he was. He was. And he had a partner for a while named Roger Goldberg. I don't know if you ever met him, but he moved from New York and he moved across the street from us. And he had a son named Hyman Goldberg with a red Jupro who was probably the best basketball player I ever met, even though Coach Weimer cut him because he was a little too wild. But you are bringing up some names, Zeta Weinshank, and then the other legendary Jewish judge in Denver, Judge Sherman Feinsover, who's a shirt-tail relative of mine. His Aunt Anne married my great-uncle Nate. So our names get confused a lot, but tell people how you knew Sherman Feinsover as well. Well, in 1974, I moved from the district attorney's office in Denver to the U.S. attorney's office. I made a decision to make a move. I had been at the DA's office for five years. I had become a chief trial deputy under Dale Tooley. I also had reached the top salary in 1974 as the Denver DA, which was $18,000 a year. So I made a determination that since I had hit the ceiling in terms of salary, that it was time to, to move. So I, I was hired by the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1974 by Jim Treese. When I was hired in that office, once again, I was the only uh, black prosecutor in the Tenth Circuit. There were many, uh, as I call, mentors including judges. And I'm going to throw out these names. Richard Mache was a mentor. Alfred Araj was a mentor. Sherman Feinsilver was a mentor. Sherman Feinsilver, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1976 to go into private practice, where he was most instrumental in my career was he appointed me to be on the Committee on Conduct. The Committee on Conduct is the grievance committee for lawyering in the federal courts. And so by being on the um, Committee on Conduct where you are adjudicating whether or not there are lawyers doing ethical violations, I learned attorney regulation law. I learned about judicial performance and, and what was considered to be the ethical performance of lawyers. That was a real plum position to be on that Committee on Conduct. And years later, in my law practice, I started specializing in that area, representing lawyers and judges when they had ethical issues, performance issues, and that became one of the uh, subsets of my private practice. So I credit, I credit Sherman Feinsilver and him making that appointment of me to that very, very influential federal committee. I credit you because you're the guy who worked hard your whole life and you are an outstanding judge. And now you are reaping the benefits award after award for being the top judge in Colorado, national awards. But I think part of the reason you are such a good judge is that you were a lawyer for a long time and you know all sides of it. It's not like you made a career out of the judiciary. Am I right about that? Because you had a hell of a private practice and you know what it's like to make a living as a Colorado lawyer. Well, Craig, I had 37 years of my own private practice. In that 37 years, I would have to say that 
I sat in every seat in the courtroom, except for being a, a juror. I had been a prosecutor in criminal cases. In my private practice, I did criminal defense work. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was in the civil division, so I did cases involving personal injury, medical malpractice, employment cases, land condemnation cases. From those experiences, when I went into private practice, I did civil, I did commercial, I did criminal defense, I did plaintiff personal injury, I did co-counseling for the Denver City Attorney's Office. So when there were cases that the Denver City Attorney had a conflict, I would represent the city in cases. I had the good fortune of also doing federal cases. Uh, this was during the period of time of the loan savings scandal. I was involved in representing the U.S. government in those issues involving the savings and loan scandals that occurred in Colorado. And then I was hired to be the attorney for the baseball stadium district for the building of Coors Field. That was a highlight of, of my career because that was a project that probably took about 10 years to acquire the land for the building of Coors Field. So the thing that I can say, Craig, is that in my 37 years of private law practice, I had been in every seat in the courtroom, including being an expert witness, uh, other than sitting as a juror and, and, and now sitting as a judge. So I had the good fortune of having that type of varied and productive private law practice. And then you got appointed to the bench by who? What year? Mayor Hancock, Mayor Michael Hancock. I was appointed in January of 2013. So this is actually year year number seven for me on the bench. And you've made quite a reputation for yourself. You run a great courtroom, and we're going to get around to that. But I have to talk about my Coors Field moment because it kind of tracks your life. I got hired out of CU Law School in their intern program. I got paid a 1000 a month to do that 20-hour-a-week job, which I thought was pretty darn good at the time. In any event, fast forward to me being in the Denver DA's office, and one day on a lunch break, and I always took lunch as a government worker, not so much now, but I took the mall ride, and I went out to the groundbreaking of Coors Field, and they were giving out free peanuts, bags of peanuts that had a special stamp, groundbreaking breaking ceremony at Coors Field. I forget, was 1993, something like that. And yeah, it was I took, 1993. I took two bags back, put them in the drawer at the DA's office, and I thought, this will be my grub steak. I may have two kids, give them each a bag. They can sell it for a fortune. Anyway, I'm doing a trial. This is back before they had security. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we just celebrated our 26th anniversary, she was waiting for me. I had a closing argument. I got there late, and she said, gosh, I got hungry. Thank goodness there were peanuts in the drawer there. <laughs> she went through both bags. Anyway, that's my thanks oh, that's for funny. putting up with that. That's why you're yeah, a head judge. You, you yeah, laugh, that's funny. You laugh at lawyers' <laughs> jokes. But what's it been like to be a judge, and why are you leaving? Well, I'm leaving. Let's start with why I'm leaving. I'm leaving because of mandatory age retirement. So I'm now 75 years of age. 
In the state of Colorado, the mandatory age of retirement is 72 for judges. Denver, we have an exception. The exception is once you're retained by the electorate, you can work out your retention. So I got retained in 2016 when I was 71 years of age. And so that retention is for a four-year period of time. And so um, I'll be 75 when I leave. What I enjoy about being a judge is, Craig, I consider myself a people person. I consider myself to be a role model. I consider myself to uh, having the idea that it is important that the people of Colorado be able to have a judiciary that reflects the citizens of Colorado. So I made a decision when I wanted to be a judge that the place that I could have the most contact with people would be in the Denver County Court because I see probably 50 people a day that come into my courtroom. I felt that I could have the biggest impact upon our community, our society, if I were in the Denver County Court. So I made a decision that I wanted to be a county court judge rather than a district court judge or an appellate court judge because of the impact that I could make on people that walked into my courtroom. I have the luxury of seeing lawyers that have practiced law for six months. I have the luxury of seeing people like yourself that have practiced law for three decades or people like a Lynn Chesler that has practiced law for 50 years. These people come into my courtroom. So I like the variety of experiences. I like the diversity of people. I like seeing the young and the old that come into my courtroom. So that's the joy that I have. Well, you're really good at it. And are you pissed off about mandatory retirement age? Why should an arbitrary number be put out there like that? Well, I'm not pissed off. You know, I've had a uh, uh, what I consider to be 50 years of, of a positive legal experience, both as a prosecutor, owning my own law firm, and now as a judge. So I look at it from the point of view that I'm getting ready for the next chapter. The next chapter for me will be writing my story. I started writing my, uh, my book during the early part of the COVID months in March. I'm looking forward to uh, maybe doing some teaching. I'm looking forward to maybe doing some mediation. So I'm just looking forward to uh, the next chapter of my life. Do you have a title for your book? No, right now I just call it My Story. But let me tell you this. Yes. My mother wrote her, wrote her story, and she calls it Precious Memories. So, uh, you know, that's, you know, one of, you know, the joys that I have in terms of my extended family that my mother, who didn't graduate from college, my father, who didn't graduate from college, both in their own rights were leaders. My mother, in terms of writing a book, being able to tell her story of growing up in Denver, and me being able to uh, sort of uh, do a tag along and, and write a book after her. Are you going to practice law still? No, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think that at this point, I want to do something different. And so I had 40-some years of practicing law. 
So I don't think that I'm going to go back to doing that. I'll be doing something different. You're young. You're way younger than Joe Biden, and he's just starting a big <laughs> new job. Yeah, well, I'm, I'll be starting a big new job, too. And that's why I say I'll be teaching. I'll be doing some mediation. I'll be writing my book. I think that those are big jobs. Will you be able to speak out on politics, or can you right now? You know, I can't because I'm still a judge. Let's say that I go into mediation. Or let's say I become a senior judge in Denver. You know, I cannot speak out on politics because I'm still a judge, and that is contrary to the oath and the ethics of a judge to become partisan. So I, I want to avoid that I question. Of, I'm uh, not of going anything. to push you. What courthouse do you speak to me from right now? Denver County Court. And I'm speaking to you from my chambers in the Denver County Court, the Lindsay Flanagan Building. It's named after James Flanagan, the very first judge of color in Colorado in 1957. And if we want to talk about baseball, Craig, he became the, a judge 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line. So it took Colorado 10 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball to break the color line or the diversity line in Colorado for a judge of color or a woman judge. How cool is that? And I knew Judge Flanagan a bit, not as well as you knew him, but I saw the purple robe, and I've also seen the pictures of him breaking the color line at golf in Colorado, which is really cool, at City Park Golf Course. And Cherry Hills. I mean, he was the first black offer to play at Cherry Hills. That is really cool. Let me tell you about me breaking the color line because Please. Dale Tooley, who was my boss in 1972 as a Denver district attorney, he sponsored me to be the first black member at the Denver Athletic Club. Let me give you some more information. The first Jewish member was Marshall Fogel. So Marshall Fogel and Dale Tooley sponsored me to be the first black member of the Denver Athletic Club in 1972. So, Craig, I know you've played some basketball there. Oh, my goodness. I have, but I always regarded it as a little waspy. But Marshall Fogel's been a guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge about two or three times, talking about his biography of Billy Rose and the old Denver DA's office stories I can't get enough of. You know, Dale Tooley hired me. There's a Tooley Plaza right outside of your courthouse right there. You probably knew Dale Tooley a hundred times better than I did. What can you say about the man? Well, first of all, he was a leader. First of all, he demonstrated his leadership by creating the most diverse office in the state, law office in the state. So when he came in, he made me a chief trial deputy. He brought in Brooke Wunicke, an esteemed woman trial lawyer from Wyoming. Prior to Brooke Wunicke coming in, there were five women lawyers in the DA's office. They were all assigned to the non-support area. And so... Including Ann Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch's mother. And including Ann Allett. So Ann Allett, Ann Gorsuch, Marilyn Weil... For real weeks, all four of them were separated or segregated into the non-support division. 
when Dale Tooley came in, he made these women trial lawyers in other areas of the office. He brought in Norm Early, African-American. He brought in Raymond Jones, African-American, who became our first Colorado Court of Appeals black judge. Norm Early, as you know, became a Denver DA. He brought in Jimmy Hurd, African-American lawyer. So when he came in, it went from me being the only black deputy district attorney in the state to there being four black attorneys in the DA's office, as well as he brought in Latino lawyers. He brought in senior lawyers like O. Otto Moore, who was a former chief justice of the Supreme Court. He brought in Brooke Winicky, who may have been over 60 at the time. So what he did with his leadership, he created the most diverse law firm in the state. Gosh, you're giving me chills. And you talked about Zeta Weinshank being your year of maximum learning. I got assigned for a year to the courtroom of Judge Orrell Weeks, Division Two, Denver Juvenile Court, City and County Building. And they used to have a lot of jury trials in juvenile court, as I'm sure you will recall. So for a year, I got trained in the courtroom of Orrell Weeks, who was part of that crew with Neil Gorsuch's mother and Ann Allett. She was connected to Gordon Allett, the senator. Am That's I right? right. Yes, yeah, so she was Gordon Allett's wife. Now, I mean, so we're talking about she was married to Gordon Allett Jr. Gordon Allett Sr. was our U.S. senator. What a small world. Honest yeah. to goodness. Carrie Jackson, it's so good to talk to you. And let's talk about the city we love, Denver, Colorado. What do you see in its future? I work at 1600 Broadway, just a stone's throw away from the government end of downtown. I'm worried about it right now. You saw that it got messed up this past summer. We've got COVID going on. How is the judicial system going to get through all of this? Well, you know, I'm worried too, but, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm also a reader of history. I have seen us go through bad times from an historical point of view to the yellow fever back in 1918, the repression that we went through, Franklin Delano Roosevelt coming in in a very difficult time that we were in this depression. We, we look at, you know, even Harry Truman. Harry Truman, in terms of uh, what he dealt with and the changes that he made uh, affecting the military, I choose to think that with good leadership, we're going to be able to overcome the difficulties that we have. We will have those type of leaders come about. And so I know we're going through difficult times. I know from my perspective as a judge, we're trying to make the accommodation for people uh, as a result of COVID to be able to handle cases electronically. We have to get through COVID with a vaccination. I can remember uh, in the fourth and fifth grade when we were dealing with polio, uh, I, had a, I had a teacher that came in every day with a brace on his leg because he had polio. Craig, we overcame polio. We're going to overcome COVID. So that's how I look at it. I like your attitude. I like your style. It seems like I've been patterning my life after you, except I don't think I'll ever be a judge. But I do this. I have this podcast and I get to interview really fascinating people like you. 
I'm really impressed and I can't wait till your book comes out. I hope you sell it commercially and I hope I can have you back on. Gary Jackson, you are a phenomenal leader in our community. Let's just brag on you a little bit. How many awards have you been receiving in this last year or so? You won the Trial Advocates Award for being the best judge. Just brag on yourself a little bit. Well, one of the most important ones I got was the Wiley Daniel Lifetime Achievement Award. Wiley was the first black U.S. settled court judge in Colorado. That was given by the Center of Legal Inclusiveness. I also received the... uh, Trial Judge of the Year from one of the Colorado lawyer magazines called Colorado Law Week. I received the Anthony Greco Judicial Excellence Award from the County Court Judges Association. And as you just indicated, the American Board of Trial Advocates, which is one of the premier national trial lawyer organizations throughout the United States, awarded me the Judicial Excellence Award So I was the top judge out of 367 judges in Colorado. I just got that last week. So I've been fortunate. Right. But I know you make it happen. And the other thing you've done is you called out the fact that despite your success, there was still a lack of minority representation on the bench, especially amongst black members of the bar. Tell everybody how you remedied that situation. Well, I think you first remedy it by letting people know what are the facts. And the facts were back in 2018, we had one black district court judge out of 184 throughout the state. That one black judge announced his retirement. So we were on the precipice of having zero black judges in Colorado, district court judges. We have right now zero black appellate court judges here in Colorado. There are 29 appellate court judges. So what I'm trying to remedy it is by, first of all, making people know that these are the facts of what's occurring, and it's an embarrassment for our Bar Association. It's an embarrassment for the citizens of Colorado. The Denver Post wrote an article back on July 19th of this year where it's stated that two out of every five individuals that come into the different criminal courts across the state are either black or Latino. I would prefer to talk about not the criminal courts, but I would prefer to talk about the family courts because black people, Latino people get divorced. Black people, Latino people die and go through probate court. Black and Latino people get involved in car accidents and have to go into the civil courts on personal injury cases. And when they go into these courts and there are no black and Latino faces, how can you have confidence in a judicial system? And so I think that if you make these facts known to people, that's the way that you start making changes. And then you bring together groups of people that are fair-minded, people from different organizations that want to see the judiciary look like the people of Colorado, that's the way we make changes. It's creating coalitions. So that's a, that's a, a little snapshot. And changes come because you got the attention of Governor Polis, and there have been some appointments to try to 
alleviate that gap. Am I right? And Governor Polis has done a fantastic job because one of the things that Governor Polis has done in the last year is he's appointed five black women judges throughout the state. The five black women judges that he's appointed throughout the state, and this has just happened since January of this year, are more than all of the black women judges appointed in history. So Governor Polis knows the value of diversity. He has taken action. He has made the type of appointments to judicial nominating commissions so that there are diverse people on these commissions. Governor Polis has has done a, a wonderful job of increasing the diversity, and I use that broadly. I'm talking about women, judges of color, those individuals that may be handicapped, those individuals that may uh, be gay or lesbian. Those types of appointments have been made by Governor Polis. You see that? You're a judge now, but you're still an advocate. And I know your advocacy helped make that happen. And good for you, Judge Jackson. You are amazing. I can't wait for your next chapter. I'm glad I got to chronicle the history of a legendary Colorado lawyer and jurist such as yourself. Thanks a lot for being in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate it. Thanks, Judge. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. Bye now. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you can learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do. And I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say, Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107 for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) 
Now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday. And if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. So that's it. Another great show. Last show of November. Join me at the beginning of December as we continue to broadcast and tell the truth about Donald Trump and give you great interviews with some of Colorado's most amazing characters. Thank you to my guest today, Rhonda Fields. Keep going strong. Good luck in this special session. And then good luck in retirement to Judge Gary Jackson. What a great man, a Denver legend. And my troubadour, what can I say? Do as I say. What a great song. Thank you, sir. David Gunders. Thank you most of all to my sponsors and you, the listener. See you next week. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.